Hi, everyone. Welcome to Meet the Podcasters. This is James Deeney. My guest today is Daniele Bolelli, author, university history professor, and host of two very successful podcasts. One is called The Drunken Taoist, and the other is History on Fire. Daniele's podcasting career got off to the best possible start you can imagine, really, back in 2012 and 2013. He had just written a book at the time called Create Your Own Religion, and his publisher back then booked him on a number of different podcasts to help with the promotion of that book. It just so happens that two of those podcasts included The Joe Rogan Experience and The Adam Carolla Show, two of the biggest podcasts in existence. And things just really took off from there. Daniele has been a repeat guest on Joe Rogan, and he's now done countless other guest appearances on big-name podcasts. And seeing the level of engagement and response he got off the back of those guest appearances, Daniele decided to launch his own podcast. So he first launched the Drunken Taoist podcast, and then a couple of years later, he launched History on Fire, which is now a part of the Luminary Podcast Network. Daniele's primary passion is bringing history to life through brilliant audio storytelling, and he definitely is a true master at that craft. Storytelling is something that's absolutely fundamental to all good podcasts, so regardless of what your show is about, there's a lot of important lessons to take away from Daniele in this episode. We discuss his impressively methodical process for researching and planning episodes, why characters are the fundamental backbone of any story, we get into problems with the way history is commonly presented in the education system, and we also discuss Daniele's motivations and reasoning for moving his podcast onto the Luminary Network, and also the most effective ways for podcasters to actually make a decent living from the content they create. Personally, I've been a big fan of Daniele's work for years, so it was a real pleasure to speak with him about his experiences within the world of podcasting. This is Meet the Podcasters, Episode 7, with Daniele Bolelli. My guest today is Daniele Bolelli, host of History on Fire and the Drunken Taoist podcast. Thanks for joining me today, Daniele. Thank you so much for having me. So, alongside producing a history podcast, you're also a university history professor. So, Mm -hmm. could you briefly tell us a bit about where your love of history actually came from and how it's grown and evolved over time? I think uh, I remember as a kid just reading a lot of like kid-friendly history books about, you know, of course, there's lots of pictures and images that help you get uh, visual for the stuff that you're talking about. Mm. And I would get lost, you know, this was pre-internet, pre, you know, there were probably four channels on TV or something. So sometimes, you know, especially if you are an only child, you spend a lot of time staring at an image and picturing things and imagining and just letting your imagination run wild to put together a story. And the history books would give me the raw materials for the story. It would be, it would be great because they tell you everything about that society and what the daily life looked like and this and that. So it would just, it was perfect for me because it gave me a lot of elements to, to imagine things with. And where did it go from there? I mean, did you know from an early age that this is something that I want to pursue career-wise? Uh, definitely not. No, I even did, uh, I did anthropology as a BA in college. Um, I ended up not liking it that much. So later, it was actually after I started teaching, because I got first a master in American Indian Studies. 
And then I realized that that was a really narrow field. So if I actually wanted to teach, which wasn't really my plan initially, I should expand a little bit. And then history was just the most logical, uh, you know, it's broad enough that it could encompass many of my interests. It's something that I'm passionate about. It's something that I've always been into. So I was like, oh, maybe I should have done that first. But yeah. whatever. Okay, I'll do it now. <laughs> yeah. And, and now, obviously, you're kind of taking that passion for history and sharing it way beyond the bounds of the, the lecture theater or the classroom through History on Fire. Um, yeah. But before we actually get into History on Fire in a bit more detail, I'd love to hear a bit more about your first points of contact with the world of podcasting because it's something that you've been doing for years now and back in 2012, 2013, things were very much still in the infancy stages. The industry wasn't like it is today uh, and I know you've had long-standing close connections to people like the great Duncan Trussell, host of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast and you were also an early guest on Rogan. So I was wondering what the story is behind those initial guest appearances within the world of podcasting. Yeah, that's actually funny because my first exposure was like the deepest dive in the pool you could take. Yeah. Because I think my very first podcast was Joe Rogan podcast. And uh, I don't think I even knew what podcasting was. I remember talking to, uh, at the time, uh, Joe was doing the show with this guy, Brian Redman, and mm. uh, arriving before Joe arrived. And I was talking to Brian and I'm like, okay, explain it to me a little. Podcasting, what are we doing exactly? And he was like, uh, it's kind of like radio, except you can cuss. So like, <laughs> okay, that's cool. <laughs> that's fine by me. The, but yeah, that was what happened was I'd written a book at the time, mm. and uh, the publishing company hooked me up with two of the biggest podcasts out there. It was uh, Joe Rogan Podcast. Um, that was the first one. And um, I'm trying to think which one. There were a couple like really big ones that came in early. I'm trying to remember which one. But I remember Joe was the, the number one. You know, he still is the number one in that regard. And he was definitely the number one in, uh, in my experience. So, so that one was, uh, yeah, was a very strange introduction because I knew nothing about podcasting. And suddenly I have like emails from people for, you know, tons of email every day for days in a row because Joe, even back then, and, you know, back then he had a fraction of the audience he had today. He was still huge. And so I, I got this exposure realizing, whoa, there's something really powerful about this medium. There's, uh, there's a lot here. Oh, yeah, and I remember. And the other podcast was Adam Carolla, who's also a pretty big podcaster. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it is crazy to see to, to see the difference between then and now. And really, it's it's not that long of a of a span and time and the media landscape has kind of completely shifted in that time um definitely and was it those uh, i suppose being on a guest on those podcasts and then seeing the engagement um that you got off the back of that was that what prompted you to think about starting a podcast yourself yeah i mean what happened was afterwards you know post joe well joe like me so he called me again and again and again you know we had mm. multiple podcasts together and then uh, other people started inviting me i started doing duncan trussell's podcast i started doing a whole bunch right as a guest mm -hmm. and in my mind though my activity beside teaching i thought just would be i wanted to focus on writing um the problem with writing of course is that it's a hard medium one because people are reading less and less 
but also because, uh, you know, like most traditional industry, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get your products out to the public. So that's a much slower process. You know, you finish a book today, it's probably not out for a year. It's insane compared to what you can do with podcasting, where you don't have to jump through all these hoops, you don't have all these middlemen making decisions, you have a direct contact with your audience, you can press a button and it's uploaded. Uh, so that eventually start realizing there is something different about this medium that's very cool. And, you know, initially I was reticent because I was, I realized I don't really have much free time and this takes time and, you know, I'm doing so many things already. How can I possibly run a podcast? And I had, um, I ran into Rich Evers, who was a film editor out of Culver City, and he said, oh, don't worry about learning all the technicalities. I'll take care of the editing and recording and all that part of the process. And we had somebody else, Evan Calver, who volunteered to take care of the website. So my job was just to show up and talk. And I'm like, okay, that's not so bad. I could do that part. You know, I think that helped me get over the laziness of learning all the technical aspect of the game, which microphones to use, how to record, how to edit, how to put it on iTunes, the website, all of that. And so that made it considerably easier for me. Yeah, when when you start to add it up in terms of there, there is uh, a lot of different moving parts. It seems simple on the surface of it, but if if it's something that you're doing week in, week out, and of yeah. course you're trying to balance it with lots of other stuff that's going on in your life, it, it can get a bit hectic um, to keep it sustainable. So, And especially when you first start, just learning the whole thing, it's a lot. Yeah, learning anything from, the, yeah. from scratch, is, it's always a grind. Um, yeah. So after running the, the Drunken Taoist podcast for a few years, you started up History on Fire in 2015, which I believe was two years in the, in the making before you officially launched it. And then <laughs> yeah. it, it quickly went on to be included in the iTunes Best of 2015 list that year. Yeah. So it wasn't a bad launch for the podcast. So could you tell us all about what History on Fire uh, is, is really about and what your vision for the podcast was when you were first launching it? Well, one of the things that I realized uh, by then was like, okay, I do teach history in college. I do uh, really enjoy it, and I am podcasting. One of my favorite podcasts of all is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Mm. So how about I put two and two together, and I actually run my own history podcast. And, you know, the model was very much the Dan Carlin, long form, pick a story, any story at any point in time that you find that there's enough juice, that there's enough passion, there's enough great characters, there's, there's a cool story to tell, and run with it. And if it's two hours, three hours, four hours, you know, you can, I tend to break them up, I try to do them no more than two hours, but, uh, you know, somewhere in there, I was like, that would be fun. You know, in, in the classroom, I only get to go so deep because you have to cover, you know, lots of topics inevitably. In a podcast, I have the luxury of being able to dive really deep into a story and really flesh out the characters and the details and the stuff that ultimately makes it more movie-like. It's more like watching a movie. It's more like you get really immersed into the worldview. So I was very excited about it. I like the idea. But of course, it's uh, unlike Drunken Taoist or unlike the kind of stuff that Joe does or unlike the interview podcast where you have to prepare, but it's, you know, it's not that bad in terms of preparation. 
the history ones are brutal in terms of preparation because I would put you know, maybe you have to read uh, eight books on a topic before you can even start putting together the episode. Yeah, I was I was actually recently listening to your episode on the the Zen master Iq Sojin, and yeah, what, one of the things that stands out immediately, uh, you you can almost hear the the planning and preparation in the podcast itself because there's so much richness and and depth to the stories that you're telling, and yeah. you, because of that, it's just immediately apparent that well, this is different from. Um, most of the podcasts that I consume anyway, a, a lot of them are interview-based. And you know, as you mentioned, the workload, it's a completely different ballgame. So I was wondering if you could kind of take us behind the curtain for a second and outline sure. what that preparation and research phase looks like and probably more importantly, how you can actually stay sane when you're trying to tackle these massive, massive undertakings in these episodes. Yeah, it's a lot. So usually the way it starts is I look at some stories that I either already know about or somebody mentioned or I ran into an article about and that caught my attention, which usually means there was a kind of a wild tale that makes me very interested in the characters involved or the dynamics. And so then I do a quick internet search to figure, to really flesh out the story, to realize is there enough for an episode? Are there sources there? I mean, I've run into, I can't even tell you how many stories that look awesome for a you know three pages article but then you dive deep and you realize there's not much more than that you know Mm. the historical sources are so thin that you tell that story in five minutes and you're done because there really isn't any more to it Mm. and so those are like "Ah, that would be great but i can't (laughs) because there's just not enough so i need to find out that there's enough there are enough credible sources there to be able to run with it, make sure that the story checks out as containing some great characters and there's something epic about that particular tale. If all of that checks out, then I start looking at what are the main, uh, both primary and secondary sources on the topic. Mm. At that point, put together the list, hit the library, try first to read the, the most comprehensive book on the topic, sort of the int- So that way, when I read it, I can start taking notes that basically sketch the outline of what that story is going to be like. Because hopefully that one book takes you through beginning to end with all some of the major events. That's great, but that's not the end of it. You know, after that, you read all the other stuff that you can find. And usually, you know, if they repeat the same things, great. Okay, that's, you know, I can skim through that. But then here and there, they dive into, they either propose different interpretation of the events, or they add details that maybe the one source didn't touch on. And then you slowly get to add up pieces to the story. Until, you know, when you first take the notes, they look like a shortened version of the first book you read. Mm -hmm. By the time you're done, it looks like nothing like it. Because Mm -hmm. first you have gotten information from a bunch of other sources. And then one of the things that I try to do is just add my own element, you know, things that come to my mind as I'm reading, commentary, ideas, references to pop culture, things that can make it a little more relevant today. Uh, and that's the fun part, because that's when you, add, you get to add your own flair to the story. Mm. Um, it's not entirely scripted, because I don't want it to sound too robotic, where it feels like somebody reading something to you. Yeah. So it's somewhat scripted, but it also leaves some room for improvisation. Sometime in the middle of the recording, I decided to go off on a tangent that's completely unscripted. 
because that keeps it a little more lively and the general tone, then it's more interesting that way. So all your notes and preparation, that's kind of like a, a guideline that you have in front of you when you're doing the recording, but you, you're not kind of tied to that um, 100%. You can take liberties here and there. Exactly. There will be a bunch of quotes. And so, of course, those are you know exactly as I'm going to use them. But some of the other stuff is more like what I would do in the classroom, where I do have solid notes, but then you also improvise a bit or you let you like sometime even when I'm recording I decide to go on a little tangent and maybe I get stuck maybe there's some word or some sentence where I'm starting it and I realize there's a better way of saying it hmm. there are times when I don't edit that out I mean if it's bad you know if I really get stuck yeah sure I'll edit it out but if it's just a little I'll keep it because it actually gives a more conversational tone to the story that it's so much easier for listeners to relate to than having this perfectly polished thing that feels like somebody was going through a script that feels a little too robotic. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you can almost just immediately subconsciously recognize that when something is 100% scripted and when it's not, it's just like our ears are able to, to yeah. detect something in the tone of the voice that kind of gives it away. So it's, it's interesting. Definitely. Um, you mentioned there ab- about editing, and I was wondering, is that something that you, you do yourself and you retain control over, or do you outsource that to, to someone else? How does that work? No, I have uh, my girlfriend has been doing all the editing for History on Fire since uh-huh. the beginning. Um, nice. She's really good at it. She helps me a bunch in that. She's the one who takes care of the recording and the editing. So that helps a whole bunch. She also does the art because sometimes, you know, when we put it on the website, there's a cover art mm. for um, for the episode. So she's been incredibly, incredibly helpful in that department. And I, I suppose it's probably useful too to have someone there to bounce your ideas off because sometimes when you dive deep into some of these topics, you can't kind of see the wood for the trees. And uh, it's good to get someone else's perspective on how you're trying to tell the story, I suppose. Absolutely. Sometimes it's like, hey, was this uh, still enjoyable? Was this, am I getting too lost in details? What do you think? You know, yeah. that's, that definitely helps. Because, yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes to give you an idea of the amount of work, it's not that unusual for a single episode to have maybe 100 or 200 hours of work behind it. <laughs> Because, you know, think about what reading uh, maybe eight, uh, three to four hundred pages book is like. So you got two thousand pages to read. Then you take all the notes. Then you put them together in a way that makes sense. You add a certain flair. I mean, it's a long process, you know. It's really like almost writing a mini book each time. Yeah. So it's easy to get lost sometimes and, you know, forget what that story feels like to somebody who has never heard it. Mm. And I think, realistically, uh, I, I'm not sure many other people out there will have the willpower or the discipline to be investing 100 hours plus in, into preparing a podcast episode. But, I mean, if you were to strip it back, and there are a lot of podcasters out there who are trying to tell a good story in an audio format. Um, and, and one of the things you're really good at is bringing characters to life. Uh, and I was just wondering if there's any advice you could give to people uh, who are trying to tell a good story on their podcast and get people engaged uh, with the characters that they're they're presenting? I think a good test is if you can tell that story to your friend over the drinks and keep their attention and make them excited. And of course, you're not going to do it over two hours. You're going to do it in a much shorter time period. 
But if you can tell a three to five minute story to somebody and their attention is on and their vibe is like, wow, that's insane. How could that possibly happen? You know, then you're doing a good job, mm. right? The whole point is, and this applies to all storytelling, you know, key of storytelling are characters. There are topics that I find super fascinating, but there are no characters. Very hard for me to tackle. You know, once in a rare while I can find a way to tell that story. But people like to see the world through somebody else's eyes. Mm. So you need to have interesting characters. If you don't have interesting characters, you don't have a story. Um, there has to be something that, something huge that happens, you know, something that uh, makes you feel like you're watching Game of Thrones, makes you feel like you are kind of at the edge of your seat with. Uh, so there has to be some kind of epic action. There, has, there have to be characters. There have to be... Uh, those are some of the key elements to mm -hmm. string it together. To, uh, to ultimately, you know, the question is, nobody, unlike in a school where you have a captive audience, with podcasting, nobody has to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So the question in your mind should always be, why should anybody listen to this? Uh, does this excite anybody? Does this get anybody uh, their wheels turning, thinking about how cool this story is? If you can't hold the attention of a kid, you won't hold the attention of anybody else. If you can't hold the attention of somebody who's a known specialist, you definitely will not hold the attention of anyone else. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And uh, one of the points I did want to touch on um, because of, of your background as an academic was mm -hmm. history in the, the education system. Obviously, you mentioned it is a captive audience when you have a room full of students. Um, yeah. they, they can't go anywhere else. But part of your whole ethos has been to sort of uh, rebel against the stereotype of an academic locked away in an ivory tower, writing yeah. books and papers that no one will ever read. Uh, yeah. And with the kinds of things you're involved with, um, like MMA and podcasting, you really do stand out from your peers in the academic world. So from your perspective, what are the main issues that you see with the way history is typically presented in schools and universities? I think there's so much emphasis on, uh, you know, we are a real science. And don't get me wrong, of course, when you do history, you want to have a very thorough rigorous process. You don't want to just make up stuff. You want to be good about how you consult source. All of that is super important. Mm. But ultimately, it's still about telling a great story. Because if nobody cares, you can have the most accurate history in the world and, and nobody wants to hear it. So to me, it's like, as human beings, that's what we have done since day one. You know, the source of entertainment has always been, you know, sitting around the fire listening to stories. Stories are such a key thing for the way we work as human beings that they are crucial. And the problem that I feel with academia is that a lot of the time they have no... These people may be nice, they may be good researchers, they may, they may mean well, but they really don't know how to tell a story most of the time. They, like, that's not considered even... Like, it's almost like that's considered like too pop, to, for <laughs> academia to bother with. And I'm like, no, that's not too pop at all. If you can't do that, you don't have an audience. You just have a bunch of poor students that you torture because they have to be there, but they don't want to be there and they'll mm. forget about it in five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I know it, it is kind of crazy. I mean, I remember 
I often thought, like, when I was first listening to Hardcore History by Diane Carlin, I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, if this was the curriculum that, that was being delivered to us in school, like, I mean, I was quite interested in history anyway, but you could you could see the potential to get so many more people excited about history by just, you know, trying to, to think about the audience and think about the way it's going to be received by the, the people who are listening to the story. Yep. No, absolutely. And I think it's, um, you know, of course, teaching in the classroom is different because if you're covering a 200-year period over a semester, you don't have the luxury of diving deep on every little story. Hmm. You know, you just can't. Like when I teach U.S. history, like I have a podcast on Theodore Roosevelt that's, I don't know, I think the whole series is probably five hours, something like that. There's no way I can spend five hours on the story of one president in the classroom. I, mm. I have maybe 20 minutes. But the thing is, you can still tell a story that's really exciting and really fun in 20 minutes. You should be able to tell a story. You know, if somebody tells you, tell me that story in 30 seconds or tell it to me in 10 hours. Of course, it's very different what you have to prepare. But the ability to tell a story is not any different. Mm. You know, it's like... You can tell a great story in a tweet, in a whatever 200, whatever characters they are. And you can tell it in a giant book. Yeah. It's not as different as you would think. Uh, that ability to captivate somebody's interest is the same. Uh, yeah. the, the timing, the evidence, the depth, all of that is different. But that basic essence should be a requirement that it clearly isn't in academia. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame, but hopefully we'll, we'll see change in the horizon someday. Um, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so History on Fire is uh, now a part of the, the Luminary Podcast Network, which I'm sure lots of our listeners will already be aware of, but for those that might not be, it's a podcast subscription service that gives you access to a, a whole range of ad-free shows, kind of like a, a Netflix for podcasts. So yep. alongside History on Fire, Russell Brand's Under the Skin podcast is on there. Trevor Noah's podcast on Second Thought is on there, along with lots of others as well. But for you, Daniele, how did the move to Luminary come about? Well, one of the things was, um, I mean, clearly the idea of taking a podcast out of the public realm didn't, you know, I was a little concerned about it, but they were cool because they said, look, we'll keep all the old episodes out there. So there's 40-some episodes of like almost two hours each. So you know, there's a ton of material out there to get introduced to your work. Mm. They can spend months to catch up. And then uh, we are still going to do something where you can release two episodes per year completely free to anybody. iTunes, Stitcher, all the standard uh, places where people listen to for free. Mm -hmm. And then if people want more, then we'll have our own 13 episodes per year that are completely exclusive to Luminary. And I was like, okay, that's not a bad deal because I do get the back catalog available for everybody out there. It's not like it disappears. Mm. And if uh, Dan Carlin can keep his audience with two episodes per year through our core history, and that's all he does, if I do two free ones plus all the ones behind the paywall, Okay, that seems to be like a decent compromise between the fact that Luminary invests in such a... Like, you know, they, they want to make podcasting something else. 
they mm. want to make it where podcasters can make a full living out of it and not just the 0.01% because, you mm. know, like you have, you know, Rogan or you have Carlin or you have a few people who clearly make a very good living through podcasting. That's such a tiny slice of the podcasting world that, you know, even if you are in the top 5%, you're nowhere near that. And so he, their thing was like, no, we will support podcasters. We will support creative content. Um, and the, the gamble there is that if you make it cheap enough, then people will not mind paying a few bucks a month for some of the podcasts that they really love. Hmm. Because that's clearly the problem with the pod, typical podcasting model is that there is no model. You know, you are relying on, um, you are relying on donations, which clearly, you know, the numbers of people who donate to a podcast that is completely free is a minute fraction of how many people actually listen. Mm. You know, it's like probably one, less than 1%. When you deal with ads, um, ads only pay you for the downloads of the first 30 days. So you can have a lot more downloads lifetime. They don't matter. They pay you for just a very limited amount of time. So realistically, you have to sell ads based on a much smaller audience that you will actually reach. And even those, they are not always hard to come by. They are not always easy to come by. They are not always uh, that reliable. You may have a lot one month. You have no guarantee what happens the next month. That's great if it's a hobby. It's kind of hard if you make it your primary gig. If you do invest your you know, 100, 200 hours a month mm. kind of thing, you can't really do it in a way where you're like, yeah, I hope it will pay out. <laughs> <laughs> no, because bills need to be paid. And yeah. if you don't do that, you have to do something else that bring you money, you know? Yeah. So that's one of the problems that the traditional models of financing podcasts are, they work if you have millions of listeners. Mm. They work if it's purely a hobby and it doesn't take that much to produce the podcast. They don't work if you have, even if you have a solid audience, but you don't, um, but, it but it's a full-time gig, then it needs to pay like a full-time gig. And the traditional models are not exactly big guarantees that that's going to happen. Yeah, I think there is, because podcasting has grown a lot and become a lot more popular in recent years, I feel like uh, for people who are new to it, uh, there can be a bit of a misconception that it's a kind of get-rich-quick scheme that I'm going to go in here, produce a podcast, and the advertising money is just going to come rolling in. But it, it's it's really not like that. You can be grinding for a long time and yeah. build up an audience, and still, like it's it's not going to be it's not going to be huge sums of money that we're talking about, and especially for a podcast like History on Fire because of the sheer amount of work that goes into it. When you compare it against a kind of more simple interview type podcast format it's yeah. obviously a move that makes sense uh for someone that is in your position but because of the fact that w we live in a culture and podcasting has grown up in a way where the part uh, the content is always free and yep. that's just ingrained into people's heads uh, sure. and to go against that and to kind of buck the trend is is difficult but i think that like moving forward it's something that we're going to see more and more of because some something has to give. Like you can't invest all this time into producing quality content and you know not see any return uh, on that. Basically, 
Yeah, that's why I don't mind, uh, you know, living drunk and Taoist as a completely free podcast. That doesn't bother me at all because it doesn't really take me that much to prepare it. You know, mm-hmm. it's a few hours here, a few hours there, not a big deal. But for something like History on Fire, where the investment of time is so massive, uh, you just can't. You know, it needs to... And the funny thing about it is that History on Fire, comparatively speaking, in terms of podcasts out there, is as successful as it gets. You know, it's not the Rogan level, but it's really high up in terms of audience. But even really high up doesn't quite justify the investment when you rely purely on ads and donations. It's really not that much what comes in that way. You can have a huge audience and it still doesn't translate in uh, living, (laughs) you know, making a living on it. (laughs) let alone if you don't have a huge audience then you're really out of luck yeah like i i know uh, i listened to sam harris's podcast and like he, he was hammering on about um you know get encouraging listeners to donate for for years and years and um he finally just got to the point where he was like right we're just going to have a model where the first part of the conversation is free and if you want to get access to the second part of the conversation you have to donate to the podcast it just human nature is that if it's available for free even if you're a good person you're a nice person it doesn't matter you'll still find a way to rationalize why i can have this content for free and why i don't have to donate for it yeah which is funny because even if you listen to let's say you're a real podcast junkie and you listen to 25 podcasts on a regular basis right Mm. if you donate something as little as uh four dollars each that's $100 in a year. That's really not that much. If you are a crazy consumer of 25 podcasts, that's already would put you ahead of 99% of listeners who are never going to donate anything. Hmm. You know? And it's not a huge amount of money. You're talking about less than $100 in a whole year. So not the per episode, not any of that, just even a tiny bit would make all the difference. Yeah. But, you know, you're right. When it's free, most people are like, ah, you have to pick up my credit card. <laughs> and dude, that's like, ah, too much. Don't mm. feel like it. Um, so have you got to a position now with History on Fire where you are able to kind of balance it with your other responsibilities in terms of teaching and all the other things that you've got going on? Are you in a position where it does let you um, have the freedom to produce the content in the way that you want? Yeah. Yeah, that's the Luminary deal is definitely fantastic in that regard because it allows me to, um, you know, I was able to have help with some people that now I can hire to do some of the things that are not key to the creative content, that are not my part of the job. Uh, I had help, uh, you know, with grading things. I had help with some of the more mundane things that of my job that are not, really doesn't matter if I'm the one doing them or not Hmm. so that I would have more time and energy to focus on the stuff that's what I need to put together that I really can't have somebody else do so so that was being fantastic it's still a lot of work it's still a very intense process but it's so much easier than before thanks to thanks to this luminar deal that's good to hear I'm glad that it's it's working out and uh, the yeah, luminary seems to be going quite well in terms of the the people that they're attracting to the platform and um, I like the deal I like the idea of uh, hey you know we'll still give you stuff for free so if you really are broke or you don't want to do it that's fine you still get something so it's mm. not a, a screw you if you don't pay yeah it's still you will get free content but you know realistically you're gonna get some free content but it you know, we need to pay the bills, so some will be for the people who pay. Yeah, 
That makes sense. Um, lastly, uh, I wanted to briefly touch on the topic of um, listener interaction and engagement because I know this is something that, I mean, I think you're quite unique in the sense that you will really go out of your way to make sure that you're replying to emails from listeners. I know I personally have contacted you uh, a number of times in the past, like years ago, and I always received the reply. And that's mm-hmm. always stuck with me and stuck out in my head. Um, and it makes you, it, it kind of, it, it just builds loyalty and it, it makes you uh, like feel a part of the, the podcast uh, process yourself, makes you feel involved. But obviously, like when your podcast starts to scale up and you're getting loads of emails, like how, how difficult is that to manage? That how do you approach that? Do you still go out of your way to to try and make sure that you can engage and interact with the people who are listening to your content? I mean, I, I very much still try. It is challenging, especially with social media. Email is okay, you know. I can. It's a little easier to deal with. Hmm. When you start also looking at, you know, if it was just email, okay, life is good. But you got <laughs> email, and there's Facebook, and then there's Twitter, and then there's other thing, and there's this. So it's, uh, it's, I really need to discipline myself to try to limit the time in a day spent on it, where it's like, okay, you have 45 minutes, go. Reply to everything you can reply. Um, make it quick, get in, get out, you know. Because it, it, it's sad when you don't, you know, somebody reach out, somebody takes the time to write you something and you don't reply. Hmm. It feels ugly to me, you know, I really, I understand that if you get too many, you simply don't have the time and I understand it, but as much as humanly possible, I would like to avoid that. Um, I'm still at a stage where I do get a ton of email, I do spend way more, more time on the computer than I should, but I'm just trying to cut corners and figure out ways to still be able to do it without that taking so much of my time. Um, we'll see how that works in the future. You know, there may be a time where I have to throw in the towel and just go like, yeah, I can't. I, I, yeah. I, I saw recently that you you did, uh, you made a post that you were taking a step back from social media um, because uh, it, it can get pretty hectic. I mean, there's so much noise coming at you. And I think on social media, especially on places like Twitter, there's so much negative noise as well that, that's yeah. kind of coming at you that it does, it almost kind of clutters your brain. And it, it's, you know, it's difficult to get real deep work done when you've got all this kind of other stuff floating around uh, on social media. So are you still taking a step back from social media platforms or what's your relationship with them now? No, I miserably failed. I say <laughs> that and that I never follow through. No, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to um, just engage less. Like I don't have to reply to every single comment kind of thing. Mm. I don't have to, or if sometimes, you know, some people are nice, but they start going back and forth in messages. Like, you know, I can reply to one email from you. I mm. cannot reply to six emails in a day. That just, I can't, you know. Yeah. So trying to set some boundaries there where it's like, I'll still try to engage, I'll still try to post, but step down a little the amount of engagement. You know, it's not all or nothing. I don't have to either spend my whole day or not do it at all. Let's see. It's almost like, you know, can you have a glass of wine for dinner or do you have to drink two bottles of whiskey every day? A glass of wine for dinner is nice. (laughs) Two bottles of whiskey is not. It messes up your life. Same thing here. It's like, one reply here and there, great. Spend days going back and forth with people, but then you have no more life. Yeah, 
yeah. It, it, it's all about trying to achieve some kind of balance, like, like yep. everything else in life. Yep. Um, so before we close, Danielle, I just wanted to say a big thank you to you personally for coming on the show and speaking with me today. Uh, your influence on work and, and your thinking has had a big influence on me. I know in particular your quote of answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and a raised middle finger <laughs> is something that still sticks with me to this day. When I'm having a day, you know, an off day, you know, that's that's the kind of mindset that I want to approach these these difficult times in life with. So I just want to say big thank you for that. And it's been a real honor to, to speak with you. Big thank you to you. It was fun chatting. Thank you so much. No problem. And just before we go, where can people go to connect with you, find out more about you and, and your work? So the social media that I've tried to escape, <laughs> it's all there. <laughs> so, you know, if you just Google my name, I'm sure Twitter will pop up, Facebook account. I have a public page on Facebook. Uh, um, clearly, Luminary is a platform as all the, all the content, in addition to the ones that you can find on iTunes or stuff. They have also the, the exclusive episodes. Um, I've written a few books. So I think, you know, it's the usual. Google is your friend and uh, as long as you type a name semi-correctly then more <laughs> or less everything starts showing up great thank you very much Danielle. i appreciate it thank you <laughs>